straight out of Scotland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Edinburgh. In the last episode, Thomas Williams and I discussed a model of God called classical theism. In today's episode, Thomas and I consider several objections to classical theism. Can an impassable God love us? Can a timeless and immutable God create and sustain the universe without undergoing any change or succession? Is the doctrine of divine simplicity coherent? These are some of the objections that we consider. Today's episode also contains the ever-popular popcorn round. If you have questions or topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Thomas and I chatting about classical theism. Enjoy. Excuse me, could you tell me what time it is? Oh, that's right. It's objection time. Objection So, so Thomas, you've given us this better understanding of classical theism. And so what I want to do now is I want to look at some objections to the view, because in my opinion, you can't really understand a position inside and out until you really see how they deal with different objections. So let's look at some some objections to classical theism. So I've got I've got three here. So here's the first one. So so sometimes contemporary theologians, they'll complain that the God of classical theism cannot love us or care about us. And this is usually an objection kind of focused on impassibility. So impassibility says that God cannot be caused, moved, influenced, or affected by anything outside of himself. And so the worry is that if a God is not moved or affected by us, well, that just simply can't be a God who cares or loves about us. Uh, so can an impassable God, can, a, can, a, can he love his creatures? Absolutely. It's not going to be the sort of love that that immediately comes to mind when we think about love perhaps mm-hmm. uh, because it's i mean for us any sort of emotion is tied up with the fact that that we have bodies or that we are bodies uh, and so I, you know i need a certain fluttering uh feeling in my stomach that signals that i'm in the presence of of a, a beautiful person or something desirable um, and when I love, that's tied up with all kinds of things going on with, I don't know, I don't know any physiology, but presumably, you know, hormones and things. Well, God can't be like that, because that would put God, so to speak, at the mercy of his creatures. That would that would give creatures control over God. And if we know anything as classical theists, we know that, that God is in complete control. He is subject to nothing outside himself in order to be what he is. But does that mean that God can't love? Yeah. Why would you think that? Um, you're just you're thinking about God too anthropomorphically, the classical theist would say. Yes, God loves his creatures. God pours forth this infinite love, which springs not from his reaction to anything outside himself, but from himself. That he is, doesn't just have love, right? Mm-hmm. He is perfect love. And that love... It's not bodily. I mean, God doesn't feel all woo 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 when He thinks about us and how wonderful we are. It's not. It's not like romantic love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not even. It's more like the love of a parent for a child. I mean, think about the love that a parent has for a child. That may, at a given time, have an emotional overlay. Probably often does. 
but it needn't. Would we say about a parent who is not kind of actively feeling that rush of, of joy and attachment um, that that parent doesn't love the child? I don't think we would be inclined to say that because the, a parent's love for the child is something more enduring, much less reliant on a particular state of feeling, certainly mm-hmm. on, on a bodily state. That gives us a way into understanding what God's love for God's creatures would be like. And I, th- I think I think you can make that sort of thing work. So what impassibility preserves is more, I think, the idea that God doesn't need to be affected mm-hmm. by creatures, right? Our emotional reactions are just that. They're reactions. Right. Right. So I I see someone who's attractive or I, I see a situation that's that's frightening, whatever it might be, that arouses love or fear or anxiety or joy or whatever mm-hmm. in me. God can't be like that because God can't need external stimuli in order to, use the word loosely, feel the right. way God feels about things. God's overflowing generosity of love reaches out to everything that he creates without, and again, obviously leave Jesus out of this, mm-hmm. overflows to everything he creates without any sort of bodily analog and without the need for an external stimulus to, to make it happen. It overflows from his nature. It is his nature. Right. And so sometimes classical theists will say something like this. They'll say, look, the kind of love that you have, it's so reactive. It's so dependent upon other things in order to be expressed. And so that, well, it's, it's a kind of dependency. So it's really not that much of a perfection. Whereas, you know, if you've got a classical God, his love is not dependent upon other things. It's not dependent upon you or anything about you. He just is loving you. And so that's a like, that's a greater kind of love. It doesn't have to be dependent upon on the way that feels. He just is loving you. In, in the best of human love, we experience kind of sometimes a sort of stepping outside of our own need. So mm-hmm. that the best of human love is very often an unselfish love, right? You see that in romantic love. You see that in the love of parents for children. Less so of children for parents, at least when they're young, because <laughs> sure. that's a, a much needier love. But even in our own experience of love, we do see this, this kind of love that is in a way independent of a need for the object of the love that 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 reaches out of a fullness that is bestowed rather than a need that is in in search of being filled. Mm. So I, we have a way into I think understanding what God's love would yeah. be like on the on this classical theist picture. Okay, so it seems like they've got some sort of way to d- deal with objections like this that most people could probably have some sort of grasp of what their what the answer is. Admittedly, I think sometimes we do want we kind of want God to need us. Sure. Right? I, I often get this with my students. So, you know, why did God create? Well, because God needed someone to, you know, share his love with. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, no Christian can say that, right? Because we've got the Trinity and God's love is always perfectly given and perfectly bestowed without there being any creature. Uh, but also, certainly no classical theist is going to say that God needs right. anything. And if so if we need for God to need us, we just have to get over that because a God who needed us would not be a God worth worshiping. Only, only a God who loves us out of the sheer overwhelming abundance of his loving nature would be a God worth worshiping. A God who needs me to fulfill his happiness, that's a really sad sort of God. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose, because like, I, I think I'd have to be very arrogant to think like, I'm pretty amazing, so obviously God needs me. But we are, aren't we? Well, yeah, yeah. 
I guess if I am really thinking there is some sense in which God needs me, there is a kind of arrogance assumed in there. Yeah, that does seem right. Hmm. Okay. So, so let's, now that I'm feeling very, like, very full of myself, um, so let's look at another objection here. Maybe that'll help me feel a little bit more humble. So, so here's a second objection sometimes raised against classical theism. So sometimes contemporary theologians will focus on timelessness and immutability. And so the objection is that God cannot create or sustain the world in existence without undergoing change. And there's lots of different ways you can kind of nuance the objection or state it. But here's just one example. So someone might say, like, look, a changeless God cannot be omnipresent to an ever-changing world. Or you could say it maybe something like this. A God without succession cannot be wholly present to a world filled with succession. So how might a classical theist respond to something like this? So to, to give a really adequate response, we'd have to get more into the weeds of the understanding of time mm-hmm. than, uh, than I'm actually capable of doing. That's a oh, really sure. difficult area of philosophy. And if, normally if I got questions about it, I would just say, well, go ask my friend Ryan Mullins. He knows about this sort of thing. But I think generally from the from the theistic perspective, the classical theist perspective, what you want to say is something like this. No, there is no succession in God. But what it is for God to be present is for God to be active. So God to say that God is present at a time is not to say that God is somehow in the time, mm-hmm. contained in the time. Any more, I mean, think of the analogy with with space or place, sure. right? To say that God is present here in this place is obviously not to say that God is physically contained in this space, but to say that something like this this place is immediately open to God's power and knowledge. There is nowhere here that he cannot act. There is nothing here that he cannot know. It would be the same thing about time. That for God to be present at or in a time is for God's power and God's knowledge to extend, to encompass, mm-hmm. right? To extend to or to encompass that time. Now, the claim of classical theism is that God manages to do that without there being any succession in God. So that all of all of time is open to God's power, all of time is uh, open to God's knowledge, but in a non-successive way. So to come back to the slogan that I keep using, because mm-hmm. I use it for teaching all the time and it's in my head, whatever God is, God always is, whatever God does, God always does, whatever God knows, God always knows. So God knows non-successively the succession of time. God acts non-successively at every time. So everything in the universe is upheld by God's power always, but God's upholding it is not at a time. What God upholds is at a time. Whether you can make sense of that, as I say, is going to depend on sure. your views of time. And there's some views about time that make that easier than others. That's the claim. Uh, I dispute that uh, quite a bit. But yeah, that is typically the claim is that, yeah, look, there's different certain theories. So if I'm a presentist, only the present moment of time exists, which is actually very classical to say these sorts of things. Yeah. Whereas if I affirm something called eternalism, the past, present, and future are well, they really deny there's such a thing as past, present, future, because they'll say all moments of time exist in their order. And so a standard claim today from contemporary classical theists is if I've got this eternalist picture, well, all the, the moments of time are literally there for God to act on. Uh, whereas if it's a presentist story, God has to wait until these new moments come into existence to act on them. And so, and so that I, seems I think like you and I agree that that doesn't actually make a difference right? i don't think that the yeah your temporal ontology i don't think makes a difference because when you're looking at the eternalist picture 
you do say all moments of time exist, but there still is succession within right. it. Even though there's not past, present, future, there is earlier than and later than. Exactly. And so you've got... I mean, I read a lot of people nowadays who say that if you're going to have a timeless God, you have to have an eternalist picture of yeah. time. And I don't, I don't think that's right. No, I don't either. But that's the standard move. Uh, I'm trying to think. Like, there's very few people who agree with me, though. Like, Natalia Ding has a new book out on God and time. It's just an introductory. And she, she says the same thing. She's like, it doesn't really matter which way you go in the temporal ontology. A lot of the same objections that you would have against timelessness, they, they still work. Because, and, she, and she's an eternalist herself. So she's very committed to that particular temporal ontology. So she's like, look, all these people keep talking about eternalism in the wrong way because there's still succession. There's still change all within this time. That's just what time involves is time is succession and change. And the people when they're trying to tell this detailed story about God and time on an eternalist story, they're just ignoring the details. They're just forgetting about the whole fact that there's still change and succession within there and that there's still earlier than and later than. So once you get the details on the table, Oh, gosh, actually, the objection comes right back. But I think eternalism does make some things easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and some versions of presentism, I think, are easier than others. But yeah. in general, if you've got – I think you're right about this. If you've got succession of any kind, you've you've got a problem for a god who doesn't have succession. If yeah. not in God's knowledge – and this, for me, is really where the where the rubber meets the road in, in questions about providence. Mm. I think there you have – uh, well, I don't know. Maybe everybody's equally screwed on divine timelessness. I'd have to think about that. Oh, so with providence, so he's thinking something like this. So in order to actually have providential control, I need to know what time it is now so, so I know when to act. Is that is that kind of the... No, I, I hadn't thought about that. I could think about that. Because it, it seems like, yeah, I can know that. Like, okay, well, Ryan and Tom are going to talk at, you know, whatever particular time. Cool. I know that eternally. <laughs> well, when, when, like, when is that going to happen, though, so I can make sure that they have a good conversation? Ooh, I don't know, because I don't know what time it is now. Like, that would be pretty providentially right. useless if that was the case for God. I was thinking more about maybe this is just going to be a problem for a timeless God, no matter what the mm. sort of topology or topography, what's the right word, of time is. That if you're going to act providentially, it can't be the case that, well, it can't be the case that everything you know, you always know. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you know... Let's say, you know, Ryan prays for X at time T. And then you, as a providential God, are going to answer Ryan's prayer at time T plus one. Well, you better not know in one and the same moment both what you do at T and what you do at T plus one, because by then it's too late. Oh, right. right? Yes. So I, maybe that I guess that problem is just one that you're going to have on an eternalist view. It, anyway, at least without some fancy, maybe Molinist metaphysics or something. You, if you, most of the people I see who do this, they want to get rid of the Molinism. Oh, yes, they, please. By all means, get rid of Molinism. Which is, which is I, I really want it. I really want Molinism so bad, but I just it's got, got everything worries. you want in a view of providence except for truth. I know, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the, the biggest problem I have because I'm like, I really, <laughs> I didn't need to make these things true. Yeah. Um, but so what they'll do is they'll say, like, so say eternalism is true. So all the moments of time just are there. Well, God's eternally sustaining them in existence. Well, where does the providence bit get in there? Because, like you said, it's too late. Because, like, what I'm when I'm praying at a particular time, in the next moment, God's answering the prayer. Well, that's just eternally settled. Yeah. Like, it's already. So, when does God actually get to go? Well, actually, I want things to go this way. Well, some people, uh, what they'll do is they'll build in these uh, causal circles, these causal mm-hmm. loops, and I'm like, so you have to have God 
doing things after slash before he does them in order. And I'm like, that's just, if you have to introduce causal loops into your story to give God some kind of providence, you've lost the plot. And yeah. I, and I just, and I, I just really struggle to understand how that makes sense. But that is one answer I've seen is to say, well, look, if I build in some causal loops here, so God causes the whole timeline, but he also is, you know, like somehow like responsible for these other things in this really bizarre, complicated way that most people will reject, but no, it works though. Trust me. It works. Yeah. I swear. Providence is a difficult one for it me is. because I do I believe that God is provident. I believe that God answers prayers. I believe that God shapes the the, the course of history. Um, and you know, and I believe that at the level of individual lives, I believe it about my own life. I don't have a philosophical account of that. Mm. I would really like one. I'm I'm comfortable not having one. It's not well. I don't have a philosophical account of that, so I, I guess I have to give up belief in providence. Right. No, I believe in providence. I will hope that somebody will come up with a good account of it that I that I can buy. Uh, but for right now, I'm just going to affirm that God is provident and await how, a solution to the philosophical problems. Yeah. So how does it work? I don't know. But no idea. But it clearly someone's got to figure it out. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. So let's look at one more objection here. Uh, so this is a final objection, uh, and this, this is one against uh, divine simplicity. So sometimes contemporary theologians they're divided over exactly how we understand simplicity, and so one will say like they'll say something like this: they'll say, "Look, divine simplicity is is just incoherent to say that God's attributes are identical to each other." So, for example, power and knowledge like those just seem obviously like distinct. So, how could power and knowledge really be identical in the case of a simple God? Well, the difficulty there, I think, is in in phrasing it as how can power and knowledge be identical Mm -hmm. because obviously power and knowledge are not identical right but god's power and god's knowledge can be identical because they're both god Mm. so you can at least make a stab at saying something intelligible about that i think now if if you press it i mean simplicity for me is just hopeless Mm. um and i can't say that i was sort of all that committed to it even back when I was a classical theist. I mean, I affirmed it because it's part of the package, but it's not something that I'm inclined to get terribly or even then was inclined to get terribly you know, excited about the way a, you might get excited about, say, denying that God has some bit of knowledge. I mean, that's obviously a non-starter. Mm-hmm. But really, is it so bad to say that God's knowledge and God's power are distinct? It seems like you need to say that because the content of God's knowledge is clearly going to be contingent, right? If we... If we are free, or for that matter, if God is free with respect to whether he creates or not. So here's a bit that God knows. There are things in existence other than myself. Mm-hmm. Well, he could have not known that because it could have not been the case, or so I'm inclined right. to think. But if God's knowledge just is God, and God's knowledge could have been different, then God could have been other than God is. But that can't be right. That God's very nature Right? I mean, simplicity is precisely what causes you this problem. Mm-hmm. You say, well, there's God and there's what he knows. No, God's act of knowing is God's very nature. But that act of knowing could have been different. How do you block the inference to, and therefore God could have had a different nature? I don't see how you could block that inference. So, I mean, there there you can pile up incoherences very quickly once yeah. you get going. Do you think maybe something like the doctrine of analogy could help here? No. Okay. <laughs> so there's my short answer. Sure. Okay. So tell um, us what the doctrine of analogy is. So I guess. the doctrine of analogy um, is uh, it's closely associated with Thomas Aquinas, 13th century uh, Dominican theologian, and I I find that the best way to explain it to my to my students when I teach medieval is um, I I will bring in a, a picture a photograph of mm-hmm. my nieces and say these are my nieces. 
right? Showing them the, the photograph. Mm -hmm. Now, we all know what that means. It's right. I don't mean these are the two girls. I right. Mean, like this, this picture is not literally right. the girls. Yeah. But, but so in the technical jargon of the time, I am predicating my nieces mm -hmm. of the photograph. Okay. Yeah. Right. Just as I would, pre if the, I could bring the two girls in with me, I could predicate my nieces of the two like girls, girls themselves. Yeah. Right. Now, those predications are not the same. The, the, the expression my nieces doesn't have exactly the same meaning in those two different uses, but they're related. That's actually how the doctrine of analogy is supposed to work. It's often explained in a really sort of half-assed way, mm -hmm. even by Thomists who ought to know better because they're supposedly following Thomas Aquinas, but they're not. They make it sound like uh, analogy is metaphor. Analogy okay. is not metaphor. This is, this is literal predication. It's just literal predication that has kind of gone askew from the standard, but it's gone askew in a very particular way. In the case of, and I use the photograph for a very particular reason, um, in the case of our predications about creatures and about God, there is a resemblance relation, Aquinas mm. tells us, that underwrites the predication. Why can I say of the photograph, these, these are my nieces? Well, because... The photograph resembles my nieces. It's a photograph of them, and so it looks like them. According to Aquinas, our language about God works in the same way. The the perfections that we see in creatures resemble the perfections that God has. Now they are they are fragmentary, and His perfection is unitary. Right. They are limited, and His perfection is is unlimited. Um, they are imperfect. He is perfect. But there is a legitimate resemblance relationship that under underlies and underwrites our use of that language. So again, it's it's not a metaphor. It's legitimate literal predication based on this fundamental resemblance between God and creatures. Um, so we can say, for example, that, that Socrates is wise and God is wise because mm -hmm. the wisdom of Socrates is an imperfect imitation of, of the perfect wisdom that exists in, and it turns out is identical with God, right? Now, that all sounds very nice, and some people think that analogy, you, sort of you have to have the doctrine of analogy if you're a classical theist. Right. As a historical point, it would be very surprising if that were the case, since we get this fully developed only in the 13th century. Right, and there were classical theists before the 13th century. before the 13th century. So, it, it, I mean, yes, there sometimes is progress in philosophy, but yeah. really, was classical theism going on for over a millennium before people noticed, oh, oh, we've got to have the doctrine of analogy. I kind of don't think so. So, A, I mean, historically, I think that's a problem. But also, B, um, I think the doctrine of analogy has some very serious problems that its proponents don't typically notice or acknowledge. So, mm. you, you go back to the photograph case. Yeah. If, if, I, if you've never seen a photograph before, you're going to have no sense whatsoever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Of, 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 I mean, try to, try to just articulate the way in which a photograph resembles the person photographed. Mm -hmm. It's actually really, really difficult. Yeah. My nieces are biological organisms. The photograph is not. My nieces are three or four dimensional. The photograph is two dimensional, mm -hmm. right? The, um, the photograph is a year old. My nieces are teenagers. I mean, you name it. They're, they're, they're very different, right? Right. So how does this apply to the God case? Well, in the God case, if Aquinas is right and the classical theists are right, we only ever know the photograph. We never know the original. Mm -hmm. 
the reason we can make sense of the resemblance relation in the case of the photograph and the subject is that we know both sides of the relationship. But according to classical theism, we don't know both sides of relationship. We get at God and our language about God mm -hmm. um, only through the imperfect, fragmentary things that are around us. That's the language that we have. If we don't have some understanding of what that resemblance relationship is, if we have no clue about what the original is, then analogical predication ends up just kind of falling apart and being meaningless, right? We oh, don't wow, know right. what we're saying about God mm -hmm. when we say that God is wise. Or say, well, so there's this perfection in God that's that the wisdom of Socrates resembles. Well, okay, how does it resemble it? Well, I don't know. I, I, I can't know because my only access to the wisdom of God is through this resemblance. Yeah, but you won't tell me what the resemblance is. Right. Yeah, well, because I can't know that. So what are you saying when you say about God that God is wise? Well, my argument would be, you have no idea. Mm. If so, this is John Duns Scotus, right? I'm um, saying uh, in the late 13th, early 14th century. Look, the only language that we have to use about God is the language that we draw from our experience of fragmentary, imperfect, limited things. Mm -hmm. If that language does not imply with uh, apply without slippage, right? Without being askew. If that doesn't apply to God, then we have no language to talk about God. Mm. So when I say of God that God is wise, I had better mean exactly what I say of Socrates when I say that Socrates is wise. Otherwise, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, right. So if I say God is wise and it doesn't even have any, like, if there's no real clear link there between the wisdom of Socrates and the wisdom of God, if I mean something completely different, I've basically just changed the conversation. I'm not really talking about wisdom anymore. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. You, now you're like the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoons, right? Mm -hmm. You're just making noises that have <laughs> no actual meaning. Um, so, I mean, look, obviously the wisdom of God is dis is different from the wisdom of Socrates in the sense that God's wisdom is perfect. It is unlimited. It is unitary. It is, in a sense that Scotus notably fudges on, mm. identical with God. Scotus is key is not really quite a simplicity guy. Right. Though he does his best to say all the right things, but he clearly doesn't really mean them. Right. Um, so, I mean, yeah, obviously we can, we can distinguish between God's wisdom and Socrates' wisdom, but what we mean when we speak of wisdom is the same thing. God has it infinitely. Socrates has it finitely. But it had better be the same thing. Otherwise, we don't know what we're talking about. Right. Okay. So if I'm looking at different objections to classical theism... And I start saying like, well, I'm just going to play the analogy card. Look, I'm speaking analogically. You would say, mm, well, you got You got to give me a better account of what you're really saying here. Otherwise, you've not answered any objections. You can't just play the analogy you card. You can't just play the analogy card because either it's it's an appeal to metaphor and mystery, which is not what analogy is meant to do. Right. Uh, or you should be able to say, you know, it, it, what is the resemblance relationship? If it's not identity, right? If it's not the same property or the same thing that we're talking about in God's case and Socrates's case, then what's the relationship between God's wisdom and Socrates's wisdom? If you say, well, I can't know that, mm -hmm. then, then you've checked out of the conversation and I'm going to check out of it too. Because right. you, now you're just admitting you don't know what you're saying when you're talking about God. Yeah. Um, if you then give me an account of what the difference is, then you're committed to resolving the analogy into what they would call univocity, that is having the same meaning. Mm -hmm. So for me, the alternative is 
univocity or unintelligibility. Right. When when you resolve it all and explain it all, either you say, yeah, I just, I actually have no clue what I'm saying when I say God is wise, in which case I want to say, well, then don't say it. Yeah, just don't say God's wise. Yeah. <laughs> just don't talk about God. Yeah. Because um, you're committed to the idea that we can't talk about God. Or mm-hmm. if, like me, you think that we can talk about God and we can know what we're saying, then ultimately we're going to have to have univocal predication. We're going to have to have words that have exactly the same meaning applied to God mm-hmm. as they do when applied to creatures. With, again, all due caveats that sure. God's perfections are infinite and so forth. But we're talking about the same thing. A lot of the question really is, how closely must our sort of conceptual resources track the metaphysics of things? Mm. And so one reason you get a lot of like the radical orthodoxy types and people who are inclined to apathaticism of various sorts who get very nervous about univocity and will accuse you of, of idolatry. Sure. Um, <laughs> is there was a bit, look, God is completely different from creatures. Right? There's God and creatures have nothing in common to say anything else is to diminish God. Um, or you know, to worship a god who is not, in fact, God. I would say, yeah, metaphysically, that's right. There's there's no sort of larger class to which both God and creatures belong. We oh, have sure. Nothing metaphysically in common. That doesn't mean that the concept that the concepts we have in talking about both, right, the concepts that give meaning to our language, it doesn't mean that they can't have anything in common. Language just doesn't track metaphysics that. Right. Closely. Yeah, because I would did, like we would it. really be in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Because I would like my language to track metaphysics as best as I can, but I mean, I can use lots of language that could be compatible with lots of different metaphysical systems and metaphysical claims. And so what you're saying here is like, well, look, the same thing's going on here. I could say God's in a completely different class of, from me, but if I better have some understanding of knowledge. I better be using it semantically the same way in both cases. Right. Okay. I think that's exactly right. Okay. Well, thank you. That's very helpful here for getting a better understanding of classical theism. So Thomas, this is the popcorn round where the guests don't know the questions ahead of time. The questions can be random and the answer is more ridiculous. You have to answer these questions as quickly as possible, faster than one can say pop pop. Thomas, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Question number one. So you're here at the Edinburgh International Fringe Festival. Have you had a cheeky Nando's yet? You know, I had to look up what cheeky Nando's was, and I'm not sure that my Nando's is cheeky, but I have been to Nando's three times because I love it. It is so good. So what do you normally get there? Uh, I get quarter mingling chicken, peri chips, garlic bread. Mm. Mm. Because I, I just I get a chicken wrap a lot of times, and then uh, I'll get some of that peri peri sauce, and I just keep like pouring it on there to like fill like the whole thing up. Just like it's oh, oh it just, man, it's so good. Yeah, I just I just need I really just want the chicken wrap as like a vehicle to carry the sauce. Like the chicken itself is inconsequential. It's just that <laughs> sauce I want more of. <laughs> okay, so question number two: What is your favorite accent? My favorite accent. I, I actually love the Edinburgh accent. Mm. Um, I think it's lovely. I think I think Scots have the most beautiful vowels in the English-speaking world. Mm. Uh, so I I would I would say the Edinburgh accent. Okay, so, so you're not going for the Glaswegian accent. No, I mean there are some Glaswegian accents you hear in the U.S. You hear a lot more Glaswegian accents because a lot of the well-known actors are from Glasgow, right? Yeah, a place. So you know, a, a James McAvoy say that's that's a, a great accent, yeah, uh, as as well. But the like the more extreme, difficult Glaswegian accents, not yeah, 
Because <laughs> I, I was living here for, I think, about three years, and I had not spent much time in Glasgow, and then I ended up in Glasgow, and it was very late in the night, and a lot of people who were surrounding me were very drunk, and I couldn't understand anything yeah. they were saying. And I was like, is it just because they're slurring their language? Well, this guy's sober. Hey, can you tell me out here to help me like, get to this bus stop and tell me where to drink? He's like, he tries to give me directions. I'm like... Nope, it's not just because they're drunk. I no, can't understand this. just how they talk. <laughs> yeah, and so I just thought, well, this is ridiculous. I've lived here for so long. Like, how could this accent that's only an hour away, like, how could it really be that different? But it is. It's it's remarkably different. One thing, uh, I, if I were to have a complaint about the Scottish Episcopal Church, which, mm -hmm. you know, I don't because I, I love it, um, it would be that I don't hear enough Scottish voices. So I'll go to morning prayer at Old St. Paul's, and it will be a... a a duet between sort of posh southern English and mm -hmm. my own pretentious generic American. It's like, where, where are the Scottish accents? I want to hear them. Right. That is that is an interesting thing because I do remember noticing that going to church was like, they, like they really had a much more posh accent. So it wasn't, it didn't really reflect a lot of other Scottish accents I was hearing. Yeah, I never really thought about that. But yeah, I definitely noticed that. It's interesting. Okay, so here's question number three. What song would you would you pay money to never hear again? On Eagle's Wings. <laughs> it's a horrible horrible song and having been at notre dame for six years and mm -hmm. being an organist and playing lots and lots of daily masses sunday masses dorm masses funeral ma oh i loathe that song. <laughs> done with this song yeah <laughs> all right fair enough okay so question number four is god made of soap <laughs> Where did you dig that one up? Uh, someone might have, uh, I might have asked around a bit to, to get some questions here. So I'd heard you'd written a disputation on... I, I wrote a lost question from uh, the Summa Theologiae uh, called Is God Made of Soap? Mm -hmm. Which you can find on the internet if you if you look for it. As I remember, it was a, a sort of a challenge from a friend who was telling, you know, why does Aquinas consider all of these ridiculous questions that nobody has ever thought about. It would be like, you know, asking, is God made of soap? And I thought, okay, I'm gonna see what that would look like. And you know, well, soap cleanses, God cleanses us, cleanliness is next to godliness. And, sure. and so this whole question just kind of fell out. So ultimately, uh, only in a metaphorical, not analogical, mm -hmm. but metaphorical sense, okay. is God made of soap. <laughs> I love it, absolutely love it. Okay, so question number five. If you could travel back in time, what period would you want to go to? You said I had to answer quickly, mm -hmm. so oh, that's really hard to say. Um, I, I want to say first half of the 18th century because you know all of the contemporary music was you know, Bach and Handel and mm -hmm. uh, wonderful stuff like that. But then I would, I don't know, I don't know because there's so much. There's so much wonderful stuff, and this I is know. not a serious question, and I'm ask, I'm answering it like it's a serious question. Well, no, but that's fine, because the thing is, like, what I've thought about this question before, I'd be like, well, I'd want to go back and meet, like, Augustine, or meet, like, Anselm or somebody, and I'm like, oh, but that would be a horrible time period to be in, like, you know. Well, it really would. Yeah. Because I don't want to be around while Rome is falling and barbarians are invading, like, that's no, that dangerous. Would, that would be terrible. Yeah. yeah. You know, plus I'm gay, and so basically going mm -hmm. very far back in the past at all is right. extremely uncomfortable, so I you know, keep quiet about some things. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's a really tough question. Whereas, yeah, maybe going into like the, like going at not just a couple hundred years back to just go to Austria or something and see some different uh, classical composers like that, that might seem a bit nicer, be a bit cleaner, I would hope, you know? So yeah. 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 So I wouldn't be able to get to meet like some of my favorite philosophers, but 
it'd be a lot safer and, and probably have a bit more fun, I would think. It would be really cool to meet Augustine, but then actually I would love to meet Scotus mm -hmm. because I really want to know what he sounded like. Ah, um, right. Because you know, he's from the from the borders, the Scottish borders. Mm -hmm. um, he, he, his Latin is terrible. It's clear that he didn't pay much attention in Latin class in oh, okay. or whatever. And I, I just have this this uh, mental picture of him as having a groundskeeper Willie accent from The Simpsons. I know that can't be right, but I would really like to know what he sounded like. Yeah. So if I could just, you know, dip back to th maybe 1306 or so mm -hmm. and just hear Scotus speaking. Yeah. That would satisfy this very strange curiosity of mine. Just be there for an hour just, just to hear him lecture or something. Just so yeah. you can be like, that's what he sounded like. Well, and also to see how people are taking notes because there, there were all sorts of rules about... Um, about Lecturers were supposed to speak in sort of too, you know, faster than dictation, mm. but slow enough so that you could kind of get down what they were saying. Oh wow! Uh, and I, you know, I'd like to know about the speed of dictation, but I really, I want to know what his Latin sounded like. Yeah, that would be really interesting because I, I never thought about that, but I knew he was supposed to be kind of Scottish. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'd never thought about like what, what would. What accent would that really sound like at that time period? Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Would it, I mean, would it be Edinburgh accented Latin? <sighs> would it be Latin? Mm, I don't know. It would, I think it would be funny if he had like a like a Dundonian accent uh, instead. Oh, that would be like, great. Like just really thick. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> okay, so final question here. So, uh, so someone told me that you and, and John Corvino wrote a parody of The Sound of Music. Oh no, all of my old stuff is coming back. Yeah, 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 yeah. I dug deep for these questions here. Uh, so do you still remember any of this? Could you possibly sing a line or two from, or at least tell us what some of the lyrics were? This um, it was called, How Do You Solve a Problem Like My Vita? Okay. Um, and it was, it was about the, sort of the woes of the job market. Mm -hmm. And I don't really remember any of it, but I probably... <laughs> I think it's probably on the internet. Okay. Somewhere. So for some interested, like they really want to dig deep in the internet, yeah. they could find this, uh, this parody that you made. How a problem like my Vita? I love it. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> and that ends the popcorn round. You done a pop pop. <laughs> Disgusting. You done a pop pop. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on impassibility, apophaticism, and so much more. 